This week's TribCast is sponsored by Baylor University celebrates 175 years since its founding while growing a research enterprise grounded in its historic academic strength and Christian commitment. More at Baylor.edu. And Texas Farm Bureau is committed to the development of youth. That's why we invest in their future. Students are encouraged to apply for TFB scholarships by March 2nd at TexasFarmBureau.org. February 26th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. Politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. I almost forgot your beat title for a second there. <laughs> uh, and justice and politics reporter Emma Pladov. Hi there. Patrick covers transportation. And, oh, you know, right. That's r- really more of a policy report. <laughs> gotcha. <Yeah. laughs> Not okay. As always, we'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag TribCast. Well, we're not talking about transportation on this TribCast, but we are talking about some we'll stories see. that Patrick <laughs> traveled quite a bit for. Um, we're more than halfway through early voting. Uh, some voters are feeling the burn. Some Texas Democrats are burning with emotions over Bernie and what a win could mean. All right, groan at my bad pun. Go ahead. Um, but let's start at the weekend when Sanders sort of barnstormed the state after his win in Nevada. Uh, Patrick, it seems like it was sort of a both joint victory lap over the last few wins, but also kind of setting the stage for Super Tuesday. What was your impression of what he was actually trying to do? Democrats seem to be worried about Bernie, but he was really the only one here over the weekend. Yeah, a few things. I mean, this uh, latest Texas swing by Sanders couldn't have come at a better time for him. So he had four rallies. He was in El Paso and then San Antonio on Saturday and then Houston, and then Austin on Sunday. And just shortly before he took the stage uh, on Saturday evening in San Antonio, he was declared the winner of the Nevada caucus. Uh, You know, pretty resounding win. I don't know what the final margin is, but he was the decisive winner in Nevada. And so he was able to immediately seize on that momentum, and I think amplified what was already a very enthusiastic crowd that he was waiting for him in San Antonio, and then enthusiastic crowds that were waiting for him the next day in, in Houston and Austin. And you know, as you pointed out, there was no other presidential Democratic presidential candidate in Texas this weekend where early voting was almost already halfway over and where we're the second it was the second to last weekend before the primary. He had the state to himself and I think he took advantage of it. And really the the in terms of the number of people he brought out and the scale of these four rallies that he had, I, I don't think we've seen anything like that from a Democratic primary candidate yet this cycle. Um, you know, coming and putting on rallies of this scale. I mean, for example, in Austin, he was at Auditorium Shores, which, which is, you know, the kind of uh, venue you go to as a candidate if you want to kind of make a statement, basically. Um, you know, his campaign, I forgot what their crowd count was there. Maybe I think it was they said like something like 13,000 people. You know, you could never entirely trust those counts, but he definitely had a big crowd there and it definitely was quite a quite a scene. And so he really, I think, was able to seize on the momentum that that was happening in, in Nevada at the same time. And a Marianne Williamson endorsement right, exactly. with it. Yeah, who? How could we forget? <laughs> and a, it's a good city for him to be endorsed by her. Honestly, the, you know the, the bio. Go right into this, it. <laughs> the spiritual community in Austin very strongly for Marianne. So we'll see whether that uh, significant support transfers over to him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think the the degree to which we are thinking and talking about sort of the delegate math ahead of Super Tuesday is obviously a nod to how pitched this all is. Uh, But I think like 
I don't think we can sort of overstate the role the state Senate district distribution plays into this. And I think, it, you know, we've sort of begun to see how candidates may or may not be tailoring their approach to some of those sort of delegate rich Senate districts. But, you know, at this point, you see Elizabeth Warren coming in to do some town halls. Michael Bloomberg's back for a couple events. Is TV the best way into some of those areas? Or is it sort of the free media coverage that does come with these big rallies with big turnout? I think for most of these these candidates, TV is the most efficient and smart way, considering that right now we're at a point in this contest where the candidate's time, which is always a precious resource, is the most precious resource. They're trying to figure out how to approach 14 states that are all going to be voting on Tuesday. And um, especially in terms of targeting some of those state Senate districts, um, you know, places where, uh, you know, that, that are far, some of those state Senate districts that are not being uh, contended by every candidate that are far outside some of the major media markets, places like Odessa and Beaumont, where Elizabeth Warren is on TV this week. Uh, those are places that it takes a lot of, you know, takes more time to get to than if you're just flying into Houston and doing a rally. And so, you know, I think, you know, People, TV is, you know, kind of the thing that every cycle everyone talks about, you know, it's going out of fashion or, you know, it's not effective, but it, it continues to be a huge factor. And I think in the Super Tuesday run up, the Super Tuesday run up for a lot of these campaigns, it, it is the, the probably the most efficient tool um, because the candidate's time is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, time is important. This is the last trip cast before the election. You <laughs> know, the, the, uh, it's here, you know, and, uh, you know, there's, like you said, they've also got to think about California and a bunch of other places. But, um, you know, I, I think the idea of um, kind of getting your case to the voters, it's it's almost it's it's starting to get too late. You know, the, I mean, it already kind of feels like it's too late. With, yeah. I mean, we're I realize Texas isn't the center of the universe, but it's a huge delegate grab for Super Tuesday. And I, I don't know, it kind of feels a little late and a little well, how many people have already voted, right? I right. mean, we have a tracker on our website noting that, but a, a lot of people, right, voted even before we had a, a winner in Nevada, for example. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I think what, what will be interesting to sort of analyze post-election is how many people did wait out this time. You know, I mean, we won't know their reasoning per sure. se, but if we see sort of a jump, uh, the, a bigger jump than usual on election day, which is really the only day after South Carolina for anybody waiting to see South, how South Carolina goes. Um, if we do see a pretty big jump on election day, I think that'll be sort of a pretty interesting voting behavior analysis to do, given that we really haven't had such a pitched primary in a little while. Yeah, it's possible to just that the the kind of narrative around Texas and this race in general could kind of shift quite a bit over the course of the, um, the voting period. I mean, you know, you talked about Bernie and obviously he's riding kind of a, quite a wave right now. Right. Uh, South Carolina, you know, we'll see whether that changes that conversation at all. You know, Biden is, is right up there in the polls that we've been able to see in Texas. Although this race feels so dynamic, it's, it's, it's hard to get a great feeling as to where the state stands right now. Yeah, it's a very fluid situation. I mean, just this week, you know, three or four new campaigns that they were going to be launching TV advertising in Texas. Um, and, you know, we have Bloomberg coming back to the state uh, today, Wednesday, in another rally on Thursday, Warren returning to the state, Buttigieg returning to the state on Sunday. I expect these next, um, you know, five or six days to be fluid, not just in the race nationally, but here in Texas as well. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about Sanders and Biden and um, – 
what we've started to sort of hear from a lot of Democrats about some Bernie-related woes about what he means if it, if he wins Texas and more so if he wins the nomination for some of the sort of the broader efforts you've seen. Um, our colleague Abby Livingston in her story wrote that Congressman Mark Vesey had people coming up to him in tears in church, <laughs> um, worried about a Sanders nomination. And, you know, I, I asked this last week, but I'll, I'll bring it to y'all. Emma, you were here, but the other two weren't. You know, is there another, given these concerns about Bernie and what he means, most of which are coming from Biden supporters, it seems, is there really another candidate that does more or less? I mean, is that even something at this point that we can gauge in terms of, you know, hopes for flipping the house and the electorate you need to do that? It feels kind of squishy at this point to figure out whether one candidate does better for Democrats than another. Yeah, the only real empirical data we've had on this is the head-to-head matchups with Trump in this state because you assume that, you know, the performance at the top of the ticket will trickle down to the down ballot. We haven't seen any real data on, like, you know, <laughs> how many state house seats we lose if Bernie Sanders or the nominee, right. right? And in those head-to-heads, I mean, you know, Sanders is consistently in the same range as other as other candidates in Texas. It's not like those head-to-heads have shown that Sanders versus Trump in Texas is a blowout in favor of Trump. So what we've seen so far doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, back that up. But look, there, there's no there's no doubt that just in terms of the day-to-day operation of some of these down-ballot campaigns that having a Democratic Socialist at the top of the ticket makes, you know, gives more fodder to the Republicans makes them makes things more difficult probably puts them in a, in a more difficult uh, uh, you know more difficult box on some of these on some of these issues that Sanders has um, owned to the left um, but in terms of empirical data we haven't necessarily you know seen that yet beyond those head-to-heads which don't necessarily support the idea that Sanders versus Trump is going to be a blowout in Texas and as you pointed out too you know this is coming a lot of this is coming from Biden endorsers VC is a, is a very prominent Biden endorser in Texas and, and look quite frankly I think they're smart to highlight this is from a you know, strategy angle because, you know, what I've found in this context as presidential primary in Texas is just like everywhere else, yes, you know, Texas Democratic primary voters want someone who's going to be able to beat Trump. But like the additional layer of consideration in Texas, I think, for primary voters is, you know, who's going to be able to return to the state in November or in the general election and try to put it in play? Who, who's going to really be committed to seeing this through and not just here to win our, our, our primary delegates? And so I think that that's – they're smart to put that on the top of mind of voters and say – you know, you know, think think long and hard about um, how helpful or unhelpful the eventual nominee is going to be when it comes to you know flipping those seven targeted congressional seats or flipping the entire state house. So you know, again, it's all it's you know it's this is all political, but I think it's a you know a smart thing for them to raise. Yeah, I was telling Abby before she posted that story, just get ready for you know get ready to put your Twitter notifications on silent for the next twenty four hours because uh, it's going to stir people up. And it's funny to watch that that question of is Bernie what does Bernie mean down ballot for Texas because there are two sides who feel very very secure in their position of what they think it means. There is the um, we'll call it you know for the sake of this story the the kind of. Uh, VC side, which is, this is terrible for uh, Democrats. Um, You know, one thing that they will point to a lot is you look at, you know, uh, political press releases from Republicans over the last couple of years, they love to say, you know, uh, socialist Democrats, Um, the socialists are are pushing this extreme agenda. Um, You know, if you have a a person at the top of the ticket who is, you know, an avowed socialist, who's kind of leaning into that criticism, I, I, you know, I think there is, it's, it's reasonable to for there to be fear there. On the other side, the Bernie supporters are equally confident that 
Sanders will bring out a new type of voter, a, uh, you know, ignite uh, the supporters. Um, and right now, you know, it, they have what little data we have on their side. And, you know, the head to head of, um, of Bernie trailing Trump by two, uh, you know, that's, that's a Beto O'Rourke like uh, margin. And, and in a presidential election year where, where turnout might be higher, I think the Democrats would be pretty happy with a 2% margin would give them a pretty decent chance to, to flip a good number of house seats and things like that. So ultimately my feeling on this is that nobody knows anything. <laughs> and, you know, I, I could have, I would have sat here. That's you know, basically your life motto. Exactly. But, you know, four years ago we were having the same conversation about Trump and we obviously saw how that turned out. And so the act of kind of making predictions right now is a bit of a futile effort. Another wrinkle here is the end of straight ticket voting in Texas, right? So the, the I love talking about the end of straight ticket voting. <laughs> I, this is just for you, Alexa. But obviously the idea that, you know, having a Democrat at the top of the ticket who can help you perform really well in the places where the battle for the Texas House um, are, is really being fought, which is the suburbs. Yep. Um, it kind of trails off when you, you realize that folks who go in and vote for the Democratic nominee can't just pull a lever to vote for everyone all the way down the ballot. You know, this could be dozens of Democratic judges that you're voting for at the same time. But um, the fact that voters are actually going to have to take an action if they want to vote for Bernie Sanders and then vote for the Democrat running down ballot for the Texas House, I think changes the calculation a lot. And is another place where, as Matthew points out, we really just don't know what the effect of that will look like. This, yeah. We've we've now uh, satisfied Alexis' rule that we have to mention straight ticket voting in every single every, trip. Mm -hmm. yeah. Election administration is important. <laughs> no, but I do I do think it's interesting that when we talk about the elimination of straight ticket voting, we often think about the effect it will have on Democratic votes and less so on Republican mm -hmm. votes, even though like we know that people in the party are actively thinking about this. And, you know, I think Democrats in the last few cycles were using the straight ticket voting a bit more than Republicans, but that's a sizable chunk of reliable straight ticket all the way down Republican voters that you're also losing without straight ticket voting. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, talking about the, the, the suburbs you were discussing, I mean, I think one of the worries that the kind of anti Bernie Sanders folks have is that, there is a discomfort among a certain type of suburban voter about the white voters, white voters about, um, you know, whether Donald Trump is too extreme. And do you lose that argument at all if you have someone who's coming in on the Democratic side who wants to, like, you know, completely kind of dismantle and obstruct this system? And does it become no longer a choice between a more conventional candidate and Donald Trump? and more of a two candidates who are very far outside what has been the people who have been president in, in recent, recent times. And, you know, I can, I can see that argument. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's move on to the campaign action that we saw beyond the presidential democratic primary. Um, uh, US, speaker, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was down in my hometown of Laredo to help Henry Guerrero, um, and was had sort of like Laredo's weird celebration of George Washington's birthday as a backdrop. <laughs> I have participated in many a parade <laughs> celebrating George Washington. Um, but Patrick, there was this scene of Cuellar and his primary opponent, Jessica Cisneros, basically running into each other at the parade um, and exchanging some words there about a debate, it seems. How was the Pelosi visit generally received? I always wonder with these sort of visits whether it 
accidentally can signal to people that someone's in more trouble than they might actually be if you're sort of like having to bring in the big guns. What was the sort of reaction? Sure, I, I think it was. I think it was a powerful symbol. Uh, her being there and having and stopping by his campaign office and delivering remarks explicitly promoting him for re-election. Um, as you pointed out, they have these festivities for George Washington's birthday. She was there last year at this time uh, for the same kind of festivities, and that was the main you know, purpose of her visit this time. She also had a DCCC fundraiser where Coyar was also a guest, and so she wasn't exclusively there to campaign for him. But in the afternoon, as you just pointed out, she stopped by his campaign office and uh, delivered some remarks, basically you know, campaigning for him for re-election, saying that they don't just want to win, they want a, quote, resounding victory, saying that we don't take anything, you know, we assume Henry will win, but we don't take anything for granted. Uh, now, she's the Speaker of her House. You know, she sees her role as, and traditionally the Speaker of the House sees their role as reelecting the incumbents in their party and, and expanding the majority. Um, but I think it was, you know, a week out or, you know, I guess 10 days out from primary day in such a hotly contested race. I think it was a powerful, uh, you know, show of support by her. Just to stop, excuse me, just to stop by that campaign office and deliver what was maybe just several minutes of remarks, um, and so it was. It was pretty notable to me. I'll be curious to see um, whether we talk about the down ballot effect in the um, general election. Whether the down ballot effect of the presidential primary affects any of these races. You know, um, I think there's a, a a thing you could kind of imagine where a energized group of Bernie Sanders supporters showing up to the polls in large numbers helps Cisneros and is a challenge to Cuellar. And, you know, there's a couple other races like that um, and down down the ballot, too. Well, they'll always have the birthday celebration of George Washington to come back to, and maybe that will lift their spirits into early voting. Nancy uh, Pelosi never misses it, apparently. So. She's, she's all about... Big, big George Washington There's fan. a jalapeno yeah. festival thing. It's all very, very strange. Um, but so at this point, like, do we feel the Cuellar-Cisneros matchup is more hotly contested than the other Democratic primary we've been talking a lot about, which is the state senator, Eddie Lucio, primary with his two challengers down in the valley? Yeah, I think so. I think you have a few just structural differences in those two races. Lucio has two primary challengers, so for him it's about winning outright versus being dragged into a runoff. Obviously in the in the Cuellar race, it's it's a binary choice in the primary between Cuellar and, and one challenger. Um, the level of financial firepower that we've seen in the Cuellar primary has not shown up in the Lucio primary. Lucio's direct campaign has been raising and spending tons of money and outspending and outraising his two primary challengers combined, basically. Uh, but you're not seeing outside third-party independent expenditures at the level and rate that you're seeing it in the Cuellar primary. So they are two different races structurally. There's definitely some themes that overlap, you know, in terms of whether these two guys who are kind of more traditional, socially conservative South Texas Democrats have fallen out of step with the district. That's definitely part of the case that's being made against them in, in both uh, primaries. But I think there are some some notable structural differences there. Yeah. Well, so in the, in the Lucio primary, he is very much so touting his experience, particularly with redistricting as a reason he should stay, which I think is just interesting because we so, we've been talking a lot about sort of the looming specter of redistricting and the effect it's having mostly on general election races, less so on the primary. And I'm, I can't sort of decide for myself whether that is something primary voters are thinking about because so often you're thinking 
especially with a Lucille, like, do I agree with the way his social conservativeness plays into his votes? I, I don't know. I can't figure out if redistricting is enough of an argument there to make. Sure. And to be sure, his pitch is a little more expansive than, than redistricting. Um, and it is, you're right, it is an interesting kind of pitch in the context of a Democratic primary where usually, the, you, you know, you, it's the, those races are more turning on questions of ideology. And you see the, com- the incumbent try to kind of rush to usually kind of shore up their his or her progressive pr- credentials. And at least in the case of Lucio, um, he's not really doing that. I mean, he disagrees with some of the characterizations of his positions by his opponents. Um, but in this race, as, as we reported in our story this week, you know, he's not running away from being a very bipartisan senator. Um, he's not running away from, um, you know, how his uh, religion informs his opposition to abortion. Um, you know, there's some things that, you know, he disputes, you know, obviously some things that his opponents are saying about his positions on, you know, education and, and the LGBT uh, community because he, because he voted for the bathroom bill. Um, but there are some things he's not running away from. And as you pointed out, he's running on experience and seniority, which isn't always what we see. And, you know, you expect to see as like kind of the central message in a democratic primary. You think that someone would be running to kind of shore up their progressive credentials and, and dispute what their, their primary opponents are saying against it. And I, I, you know, I think it is somewhat a reflection of, you know, the political geography of this race in the, in the Valley, you know, you have, you know, people there who, you know, like, want strong representation, believe it's oftentimes, you know, an overlooked part of the state. And I think that him, you know, for him to highlight that and what his seniority and experience has delivered for a part of the state that's often under-resourced and overlooked here in Austin, um, I think is, is a powerful message. We'll see if it's strong enough on, on Tuesday. Yeah, I always wonder the degree to which, like, Dan Patrick actually plays in these races. I mean, I think the Lucio one is probably different than a lot of the, like you said, a lot of the other primaries where it's more so about lean into your progressiveness. Um, I am really curious if this feels like it's probably the primary in which Dan Patrick has most come up, given sure. that it's not really an issue in so many other Democratic primaries. Right, and Ruben Cortez, who's one of the primary challengers, Lucio, you know, says that he's been, you know, rubber stamping Dan Patrick's agenda, has been kind of his, you know, water boy in the Senate. Um, and, you know, in an interview with Lucio for this story, I didn't even bring it up, and he said, you know, well, you know, they say I'm too close to Patrick. Well, I like getting stuff done. You know, it's a Republican-dominated chamber, and if you want to get anything done, I like to start at the top because if he doesn't, you know, Dan Patrick's not on board with something I want to do, it's probably not going to happen. So he was, you know, again, just another example of him being somewhat unapologetic on some of the things that they're they're hitting him on. So it's it's an interesting race for sure. Yeah. Well, before we get to our last topic, we've got two more sponsors we've got to go to. Austin Parks. Austin's rich history includes iconic and historic places that make our city like no other. Explore Austin Parks today. For more information, visit austintexas.gov slash historicatxparks. And Texas Tech University, with record enrollment and research expenditures, an international campus and nation-leading programs, Texas Tech University innovates, influences, inspires, and impacts our world. More at ttu.edu. Okay, so let's get down to some judicial business. Best branch of government. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) You can't just be on your phone the entire time, Patrick. (laughs) Okay, well, Emma, you have had a flurry of stories this week about the state's highest courts. Um, But I want to start with the one you had about a millionaire called Salem Abraham, uh, who basically after losing a case at the Texas Supreme Court, 
crunched a bunch of numbers as nerds do and sort of found what is a startling conclusion. I'm going to read from the notes so I don't get it wrong. But basically, if you're a billion-dollar company represented by one of nine elite law firms, you are 5.4 times more likely to get a favorable ruling from the Texas Supreme Court. What the heck? (laughs) Yeah, so Salem Abraham is a wealthy Republican donor from the panhandle, and he um, runs a trading firm there. So he kind of you know, characterizes himself as an odds guy, a numbers man. And he um, he understands the role of money in politics. He's a person he's given, you know, more than $50,000 to Governor Greg Abbott over the years. He um, told me a story about, you know, trying to get something done in, at the Texas Capitol about rural public education. And he just realized that he wasn't getting any meetings until he started writing checks. So he's a person who understands the role of money in politics. But until he um, lost this case at the Texas Supreme Court, it was an oil and gas case, um, he sort of lost on the shut-in royalty clause, which I, I won't explain at this moment. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> but he was surprised to lose the case. You know, he thought he was right. Um, nine justices on the Supreme Court thought he was wrong. But it got him curious. So he set a couple of his kind of data guys at his trading firm to looking at about a decade of campaign contribution data and outcomes at the Texas Supreme Court. And basically, they they sussed out this list of nine they call them favorite nine law firms. And if you um, follow, you know, top level appellate work in Texas, none of the names will surprise you. Haynes and Boone, Baker Botts, Lock Lord, those types of players. And they found that in cases where um, those nine firms represented the petitioner, the petitioner is the person asking the Texas Supreme Court, hey, hear my case, you know, overrule it in my favor, please. Um, those folks represented by those nine firms had a much higher chance of getting their case through the door in the first place, which is kind of often the biggest challenge at the Texas Supreme Court. It's a discretionary court. We hear about 10 or 11% of the cases that are sent up to them. Um, and they overrule more cases than they affirm, which kind of makes sense, right? They, if, if they think a case is already right, they're not going to hear it. But um, so yeah, he found that after running contribution data for these nine firms over a decade and, and looking at outcomes from those nine firms over roughly the same time period that they were um, far more likely to get the result they sought at the high court. And that effect was only amplified when they were representing a billion dollar client. Yeah. I mean, I think what this story sort of touched on so many, not really unspoken, but kind of issues that the judicial system in Texas is often grappling with in terms of the influence of money in a lot of these races, the fact that these judges have to run statewide campaigns and many of them don't even like the fact. I mean, I I do think the it it sort of seems like it adds one more case study or some more research to this whole conversation. We've seems like we've been having for a long time about should our judges even be running for statewide elected office? Yeah, and it's absolutely worth noting that the people, many of the people who hate the system the most are the judges themselves. You know, Chief Justice Nathan Hecht uh, of the Texas Supreme Court and every living Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court has said, hey, this is a bad system. This doesn't look good for us. We hate running. We hate campaigning. We hate asking for money. Um, And we think that there's a better way to do this. Um, That said, you know, as you point out, Abraham is not the first person to sort of track this correlation. You've had kind of good government types and watchdog groups doing this type of analysis sort of perennially over the last several decades. And, um, but, but where he kind of departs from those other folks is 
what he's demonstrated, right, is a trend and a correlation. And a lot of people look at it and say, well, that sure doesn't look good, but we know that the reason these nine firms do better is just that those are better firms. They have better lawyers. They have more specialized lawyers. They they know what these justices want to hear, and that's why they're able to succeed. And um, what Abraham says is, no, this isn't just a correlation. This is a causation. These are people who are, you know, buying rulings. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you think about just more broadly voting in judicial elections and influence on judicial elections during campaign season or whatnot, like most people in the state do not know who sits on the Supreme Court. Most people don't know that when they go vote, like Matthew is in charge of our politics coverage and could definitely not tell us who is on the Supreme Court. Nathan whoa, whoa. Hecht. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. if you had actually, well, we don't have, we're running out of time here. Okay, time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but you, when you think about like who is deciding these elections, you have like the state bar. You know, all of those members are voting. They know exactly who they're voting for. Uh, some then, of them. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm probably giving them too much credit. And then you have all these other voters who are maybe turning out to vote for the top of the ticket in some of these cases. And then really just taking cues from ballot names and gender and any other sort of cue you can take with these down ballot races, which is not unique to judicial elections, but it just continues to be wild to me because we talk about, you know, polls and all of that. But in reality, we don't actually know voting behavior for so many people, especially with down ballot races. That's why these races are really hard to run. And I think that's why a lot of judges would tell you, look, we don't like taking money from lawyers. We don't like taking money from the packs of law firms. But those are the people who are, you know, invested in our races. Those are the people who are going to write us the checks. And if you are trying to get your name ID up across a state of almost 30 million people, like you can't really afford to be turning away checks. But yeah, I think you raise a really good point about um, the way these elections are actually decided, which is, uh, you know, there are political scientists and pollsters who kind of think of them almost as more like experiments in voting behavior because so few people know anything about who they're voting for. A lot of judicial candidates tell me that their campaigns are really just more like, yes, we have a Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Yes, it's a high court. Um, I was looking at a mailer yesterday for uh, Burt Richardson, who's running for a re-election to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. The entire center of the pamphlet is a diagram of the Texas court system, you know, trial court, intermediate court, high court. Um, and that's really what they're forced to do in these races. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, something that I just enjoyed so much about that story is the character at the center of it, Salem Abraham, is just... You know, the this whole legal world, I think everyone kind of knows that this situation exists, but out of professional and various other requirements, kind of don't speak about it openly. But Abraham is just kind of like, I'm a rich guy, I don't care, so I'm just gonna talk about it anyways. I mean, one of the one of my favorite parts of the story is right at the very end where he you were visiting him, right? And he just decides to call up the uh re-election campaign of the chief justice, Nathan Hecht. And, you know, you tell the story, you're better than I will. Well, he has like a bit of a sting routine. Um, his, <laughs> one of his sons and, and a partner, they're putting together a documentary kind of showcasing his findings as well. So he has this routine where he'll call like a re-election um, or, you know, election headquarters for a justice and say, Salem Abraham, you know, this is my company. How much can I give? And and I have a case coming up before the court. You know, is that a problem? Which he doesn't, but, you know, this is part of the routine. Um, and there's no law against accepting a contribution from a party. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of judges and candidates tell me that it's actually really hard to avoid. You may not know, for example, that Salem Abraham is attached to Red Deer Resources, which is the name of the party in his case that he lost. Um, 
but the this particular staffer who answered the phone that day said, no, it's not a problem. You know, I typically check with Chief Justice Hecht whether that's a problem, and he says that it's fine. <laughs> the campaign told me later in comments that they'd do their best to avoid um, taking contributions from parties with uh, cases before the court, but um, it can be challenging. You know, Abraham is on a bunch of GOP donor lists and he got a fundraising solicitation while his motion for rehearing was pending in mm. his case in 2017. So these are, um, you know, just some of the many challenges of judicial elections. Sure. Well, I was going to bring up transportation so Patrick would jump back into the conversation, but we are <laughs> out here. of What's time. What's the best, the best buckies? <laughs> Quick. Best buckies in Texas. <laughs> Favorite buckies? Best, best buckies. Oh, best buckies? Oh, there's so many to choose from. <laughs> I like the New Braunfels one. All right, All right, close to home. With that. Um, <laughs> before we go, I'm supposed to tell you that we've just launched our annual reader survey. You can participate and tell us about how we're doing at texastribune.org slash survey to help us understand how we can better serve you. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to Baylor University, the Texas Farm Bureau, Austin Parks and Recreation, and Texas Tech University, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Mass, uh, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of Matthew, Emma, and Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.